All right. Thank you everyone for joining in today once again. My name is Meher Hora and I'll be your host for the next 16 minutes. Joining us today is Nandini Maheshwari, who is the Senior Director and Head of Business Development, Uber APAC. She has played a key role in building and scaling Uber's business in the region from a challenger to a market leader. Prior to joining Uber, Nandini was an investment banker with JP Morgan in New York and executed various industry-leading multi-billion transactions from Verizon, Visa, and BlackBerry, amongst a whole lot of others. Passionate about diversity in the workplace, Nandini also serves on the global board of women at Uber. Nandini, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you're looking forward to the next few minutes. Uh, I know that all of our members and I have been looking forward to this as well. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here. Uh, I'm excited about what, we, what we're gonna cover in the next hour. Let's keep it as interactive and engaging as Meher said. I would love to see more questions as, as we speak along. And uh, I've got already got a ton of interesting questions before the session. So I hope to make it worth your hour. Absolutely. But before we get the room buzzing with a lot of questions, Nandini, um, I'm also going to engage you in a quick game. This is just so our members get to know you a little better, but despite a very nice introduction that I, I hope I could do just to. But um, are you ready for this? Yes, I'm ready. Okay, here's what you do. You have to say the first thing that comes to your mind when I say the following. What's your biggest negotiation flex? Negotiation flex. Uh, I don't, I mean, what do you exactly mean by that? I guess. Uh, your um, superpower. Superpower, okay. Um, I think walking away from a deal. Investment banking or business development? Uh, business, de business development. Your take on the 10 minute deliveries. I'm sorry, guys, I'm not convinced. <laughs> not convinced. Neither on the unit economics nor on the use case. So it's it's a tiny part of the market. Agreed. The one startup you would leave Uber for. Stripe. It's not a startup anymore, but I really admire the company. I think they're really at the cutting edge of innovation. Perfect. Thank you for those very uh, candid responses. I think uh, all of us really enjoyed how honest you were with those as well. Uh, members, today's huddle will begin with Nandini spending the next 15 minutes sharing her thoughts on what exactly deal making is and share her framework on negotiation along with some of her personal learnings. Uh, this will be followed by a Q&A, but for those of you who are joining us for the first time, we've shared the most asked questions with Nandini already, and we're gonna mix them up with some unanswered questions from the chat box as we go along today. So don't hold those questions back, and um, Nandini, I'm now gonna hand over the space to you. Um, it's only fair to say that everyone is looking forward to hearing from you. Too much pressure. I will try to live up to it. Okay, let's get started. Maybe I'll give a little bit of context. I know I may have covered my background, but you know, I think uh, negotiation is like a buzzword. You study at business school, you do trainings, but tr truly it's something that you learn on the job. So, so I think what I'm hoping for you to give away today is a few frameworks and pointers uh, that you can at least reflect on and remember, even if when you come through those across those situations or build upon your learnings, right? And how I came across it, I mean, I, I, I ended up in investment banking after my business school at Chicago on Wall Street. It was an amazing experience. I worked on some of the largest MAs, which gave me a lot of grounding in financial negotiations. Uh, and then I joined business development at Uber in 2015. I'm going to complete seven years at Uber, which is a very long time. I'm the most tenured person at entire business development team at Uber globally. So I've clearly seen a large variety of deals across countries, across different types of the maturity of the business. I mean, Uber was a tiny company versus today it's a public company. 
different types of stakeholders. Uh, and obviously, uh, I'm negotiating my salary and, and all the others who join my team, right? So uh, it is, it, it's so the, the, the things I'm going to share with you is a more a concoction of, of seeing hundreds of varieties of deals and partnerships over my decade log experience in this in the last year, in, in the last decade. Um, and also, if you guys reflect, you know, deals, of course, on paper, it's MA deals and investment deals and things like that, but truly, we're all negotiating every single day. In our, in our lives, personally, professionally, externally, internally. I mean, even if you don't have an external job, you're still negotiating for resources, for promotion, for getting more headcount, for getting your product prioritized, for, for getting marketing to give more funds for your project versus something else. So you are always negotiating. And I mean, I call it, I call deal making to be a, like a combination of skills which I'll cover, but in terms of me, my daily practice is negotiating with my four-year-olds. I think kids are the best negotiators. So the more you can implement with them some of the tools, I think that will be the safest place for you to practice your skills. If you have kids or nephews or nieces or whatever that is. Um, switching gears, what is deal-making? And I want a lot of people think of deal-making as just a negotiation. I actually think it's a four-step process. First phase of the process is the, is the deal strategy. Why do we want to do this deal? What are we trying to achieve out of the deal? Which is a lot about strategic thinking, commercial mindset, and just understanding the qualitative and quantitative impact of what are you trying to accomplish? That's the step one. Step two is deal sourcing, which could be if I want to accomplish something, what could be potential partners, vendors, clients, what could that be? And how do I build relationship with them? How do I get into a position of an equal stature with them that I can actually do an effective deal? Which is so much about interpersonal skills, relationship building, building trust. So we'll talk about that. The third part is deal negotiation. You need to do the first two to get to the stage of actually doing the negotiation, which is a core negotiation skills that I'll spend more time on. And the last part is deal execution, which is you've negotiated something but then how do you get the results out of it? Otherwise, it's just a piece of paper. How do you convert that piece of paper to real business results or real impact to your life? And that's where you're talking about stakeholder management, the buzzword, right? I mean, literally deals are very hard to execute. You are moving not one, two organizations at the same time. You're expecting your counterparty to move according to you. And you're obviously moving your own organization to also deliver the results. So, this is these four stages are very very critical and the more you think about them in an intertwined way the better your deal making is because everything moves into another so if you expect certain challenges in execution you should expect to negotiate certain things at the negotiation stage because you know they're going to be execution challenges you also need to have the relationships to be able to get those things in the negotiation and and out of all of this the summary is why are we doing this what's our strategy and this deal could be a one-year, two-year, three-year deal. What does it do to your business today? What will it? What will happen if the deal goes well? What will happen if the deal does not go well? What are your alternatives? What do you do beyond three years? I mean, are you becoming too dependent on them? Are you becoming less dependent on them? So I'm just trying to share that the art of deal making is not a point in time. It is an iterative, multifaceted process. But these four things, just to summarize deal strategy, deal sourcing, deal negotiation and deal execution are the four things you should always keep in mind. 
Now talking about the negotiation process a little bit, right? Because uh, that's where you guys want probably more specific input from me. Uh, again, maybe slightly, uh, again, a framework for you guys to think about. A typical negotiation process is again, four phases. First is prepare. And I'm gonna talk a lot about preparation. If there is one thing that you take away from today's session and forget everything, just make notes on preparation. I have seen most of the times people fail because of not doing well on the preparation phase. They're just not prepared because they're not prepared. They're not confident. If they're not confident, they say things they should not have said, and it just goes into a loop. So preparation, preparation, preparation. It's the most critical phase. This is where you're gonna identify what you want to achieve and how, what are your negotiation contours. It is going to tell you what, what, what are you gonna even negotiate? You don't even know. What are the issues? How can you expand the issues? So that's phase one, which we'll spend more time on. After the preparation becomes the second phase, which is argue. That is where you'll engage. Preparation is all internal. You haven't even spoken to the counterpart. Argue is basically the first time that you engage with whosoever you're negotiating. And that's where your dialogue begins around what you wish to achieve, what they wish to achieve. And this is the phase where your communication skills are truly tested not just in terms of what you're speaking, but also what you're listening and what you're observing. I'll say it again. It's listening, observing, and speaking, all three matter. This is where I see a lot of errors. People go prepared with everything they have in their heads and they just wanna get it out. And they don't spend enough time observing and listening because that's where they miss the information. So this argue phase is very critical where you'll be asking questions, you'll be exchanging information, and then this is the phase that actually defines the power dynamics of the negotiation. So super critical. And this is where, especially for women, dem demonstrate quiet confidence. That's one tip I'll give it to you. I feel like men always get like super hyper and excited and aggressive because they've got their preparation, they know what they wanna get, and they're so used to getting especially for women, either we become too quiet, don't be too quiet, like quiet confidence. I'm prepared, I know what I want, I have the right arguments, I will speak when needed, I will summarize when needed, I will ask probing questions when needed. Demonstrating quiet confidence in this phase is something that to reflect on. And then um, obviously silence. It's super hard, supremely hard, but be mentally ready for moments of silence. This is where you'll come out as a winner uh, in the argue phase, if you are okay with that silence, because that's when you're giving the other person some space to think and react. Otherwise, both sides are prepared and they're just collided without any flexibility to kind of reflect and process other side's information. So this is the argue phase. The third phase is propose and package. What I call about is lots of people get stuck at the argue phase because they're just giving each other's arguments. I need this because X, Y, Z. You need this because X, Y, Z. And you're trying to just persuade the other person. You're not negotiating, you're convincing the other person. There has to be a time of that argument, argue phase that should move to, to negotiation, which is propose and package, which is what are the terms? What are the issues? What are must-haves for me? What are must-haves for you? How can we rearrange the variables that we can come up with an outcome that is win-win for both in, in many ways? And fourth one is, uh, close and agree slash disagree, which is at some point you've got to close the deal or you've got to walk away. Both are hard, but 
if you're agreeing, you've got to be confident that I'm going to get results out of this deal. And if you're walking away, you know that this was probably the better decision than actually doing it because you're not going to get the results anyways. Or you're not getting what you need, so you might as well walk away. So to summarize again, four phases, prepare, supremely critical and foundational, argue, which is where all your communication skills, third is propose and package, which is they're truly trading off items after knowing what matters to you and your counterparty, and fourth is close and agree or disagree. Okay, I see some heads nodding. It feels like some of the things are resonating. <laughs> so hard on a webinar to kind of understand whether it's uh, it's making sense or not. Um, and then I'll close out by sharing my top three learnings uh, for you guys to remember, and then we'll, we'll chat in the questions. So my top three learnings, number one, about preparation. In terms of preparation, as I said, it's key not just for you to define the negotiation contours, but also to build confidence. This is my answer to your imposter syndrome. You will get confidence once you're so prepared and you're so much more prepared than a counterparty. And this also plays to our strengths as women. We're always super you know, into the details on top of it, preparation. This is where at least I feel I spend a lot of time and it depends on the type of negotiation. If it's a negotiation that's gonna change your life, several hours, several days, but sometimes you just don't get enough time. If it's a small minor thing, but you know it's gonna be a like some kind of a negotiation, right? Even 15 minutes of quiet time is enough. So don't make preparation so hard on yourself that, oh my God, if I haven't prepared for like two days, it's not worth it. Like I use even 15 minutes of break. And obviously as you do more of it, you'll get better at it. But anything from 15 minutes to hours is good. And what do you do in the preparation, right? Preparation is a couple of things and I'll, I'll go in other details as well, but you pretty much need to have a very clear agenda. What's your opening statement? What's your body language? What's your tonality? Like think hard, who am I talking to? What do I want this person to take away? Do I really want this deal? I want to be, do I not want this deal? How much time I have? How much leverage I have? So that, that what you're going to say as well as what, how you're going to appear is super important. Second is if you have a team and you're going as a group, two people in a meeting or three people in a meeting, extremely critical that you guys decide your roles before you enter that room. I see so many times people blowing up really good deals just because they're not coordinated. Somebody will say something that's not needed or be very, very clear. Who's the good cop? Who's the bad cop? Who's the observer? Who's the negotiator? It's a team, but you still need to have roles. And it is it applies equally to internal situations, by the way, when you're making a pitch for an investment and things like that. Um, obviously anticipating difficult questions and having well-researched responses, uh, doing all of the what-if scenarios, uh, problem solving, clarifying on your alternatives. And that's what I say all the time. The more you've thought about your alternatives of the deal, the more power you will have when you enter that room. Uh, lots of times people have not thought about the alternatives. That's why they appear so desperate that they really want to do the deal. Um, and the most important thing out of the preparation, this is all internal preparation, right? The most important thing is preparation on the counterparty. What are their pressures? What are they, what are, what are likely to be their leverage points? What are their alternatives, not just yours? Maybe you have more time, maybe they have less time because they have something else coming up. So what are equally like, what are their pressures, their timelines, their decision-making process? The, 
leverage, etc. So that's the preparation phase. Uh, that's my number one learning. Like the more you do here, the more you will be better at it. The second is in the argue stage. Uh, as I said, communication skills make or break uh, this phase. And here, uh, I know I talk in threes and fours mostly, I guess I'm just gotten used to it uh, uh, to get people to remember. But three things here, you know, be curious, genuinely curious, ask lots of questions, ask very basic first principle questions. I feel like you just don't ask sometimes. Uh, the, if you don't ask, you will not get information. If the biggest mistake you can make is you do infinite preparation and you just go and tell them everything that you've prepared. You have done the preparation to build your confidence. You have not done the preparation to share everything with the other party. You are entering the argue phase so that you can ask good questions, then they will give you answers and your preparation will help you respond back much better. So don't go into the room sharing all your preparation. Go be very curious, very basic. Oh, what's the motivation for X? What's the timeline you're looking for? Or you have this fundraise coming up. Do you want to do it before or after? How will that impact? Uh, where does the decision-making rest? Like, even if may, you may know the answer, it's okay to ask because you're helping them open up. What are, and basically, what are their objectives as a company level, but also understand the individual. What's, what is he looking for? Is, he, is this deal gonna make that person promoted? What's, what is the individual objective? How critical is it for, for you to meet your targets? Why does it matter now versus later? So very simple, curious, open-ended questions. That's what you need to ask. Second is be genuine. You're there to problem solve together. You're not someone who shows up, I know what I need, I really don't care what you're gonna get or not. If that's the attitude, nobody's gonna tell you anything. So you are going there to be a genuine problem solver with them. And if you still don't have the intent, just do one thing, play back their message, summarize what they've said. They will at least feel you heard them. Very, very simple. Um, and third is be results oriented. That's one thing I, I practice quite a bit. I mean, I'll spend time learning about them. I'll try to be super nice and all of that stuff. But I'm like, guys, I, this is my framework of the deal. This is the timeline. What am I, I'll give them at least something to work with. If I give them nothing, that's another extreme people go to. They'll just be there and sit quietly and expect me to give them everything. I'm like, guys, you're not going to talk about it. I don't have infinite time to just sit here and look at each other. So do like be curious, be genuine, but then be results oriented. And that's where depending on the leverage you have or the situation you're in, you should give them at least some pointers or some principles to work with versus leaving it in a very, you know, entropy state where you spend two hours with them and they don't even know where to begin. You need to give them something to start with. Um, and then again, like last, is here again, listening is very, very important. As I said, I read this quote somewhere. I'll repeat it because it's funny. Um, it says negotiators are detectives. They ask probing questions and then shut up. The other negotiator will tell you everything you need to know. All you have to do is listen. And big part of preparation is also the questions to ask. So don't think that you're gonna just sit there and have like have an intuition. If you're, unless you're very seasoned, you should have prepared set of questions as well as part of your preparation. Um, third is uh, negotiation stage. I'll, I'll just summarize this real quick, which is negotiations are fluid. They're not like what's in the movies. They're not adversarial. They're collaborative problem solving. 
So you got to be smart, respectful. You're not going to share everything, but you have to be creative and adaptable. And it's literally like a working session. That's the way I see it. Um, and some bonus pointers for you guys out of my three learnings that I mentioned about preparation, argue, and uh, negotiate, which is building authentic relationships matters. At the end of the negotiation, the other person should respect you for how much energy and thoughtfulness you brought to the table. They should be impressed and inspired by the, and they should also respectful, respect you for, for, for the human you are. Otherwise, these are just negotiations. At the end, negotiations are not a means to an end. You're gonna be working with them, right? Like they're gonna be your partner or investor or boss or whosoever that is. So super important to keep the long-term in mind. And last is, um, it's okay to walk away, guys. I feel like there is just so much pressure to do deals, being willing to walk away. And you know, you should, at every stage you should have that in your head that I'm willing to walk away if I don't get these things. It will give you the confidence. It will give you internal confidence if nothing else. Um, so always have that at the back of your mind. It'll give you that inner strength. So I'll pause here. I feel like my monologue has gone quite a bit. Um, and I will look at questions now. Well, thank you, Nandini. I think uh, very insightful points, actually. I know I was taking notes on the side. A lot to think upon and a lot to work on as well. Um, you discussed a lot of pre-work that one must go through, you know, especially the prepare bit. I think that's super, super important. Um, I actually wanted to ask you if, and I think that's a question that came a lot from members as well, is, um, why negotiating? I know you said the pressure is very, very high to kind of come up with, it, you know, close a deal and everything, but how do you actually go through the entire deal making process without compromising on what you want? Because that is also an integral part of, um, you know, what you're feeling when you're negotiating or when you're getting into a deal. So what's a good deal strategy there um, and a process that one can kind of implement? Yeah. So I have a template that I give to my teams. I can give you like a little bit of preview of that. Um, so as you do the preparation, you will have all the issues, right? Let's say five issues, price, quantity, terms, money, whatever revenue share, whatever those issues are, right? They're gonna be a, a list of items that you're gonna negotiate. It's not gonna be one point. Uh, and if you have one point, you're not negotiating well. You need to have three to five items at the minimum to have at least a discussion. Otherwise it's, it's a unilateral negotiation and it's not gonna give you much. So you have those list of issues. In those issues, I pretty much have what do I intend to get, where I'll be happy living with, and what is my must achieve and must avoid. So out of those five, these two I have to achieve at any cost, or this is what I have to avoid, and this is what I'm okay to live in with. Honestly, this is the real work. This is where a lot of people do not spend time internally aligning the organization when they go and represent the organization. If you have sorted your must achieve, must avoids, and what you intend to get in a way that works for you and your team and other teams that are dependent on you, you'll be in a much better position to negotiate. And, and I would say that's the one thing. Uh, the sec the couple of other things to think about is, I don't know if you've heard of this term called wish list and concession list. So wish list is basically things are not must have, but like good to have. So you would want it, but you're not gonna do much about it, right? So I don't know payment terms or a press release or like want to be on somewhere, some advisory committee, things like that, right? There's some wish list. And there'll be some concession list, which is equally important, by the way. Most people go with wish list, they don't go with concession lists. They know what they want, but they don't think of what could be the wish list of a counterparty. So your concession list needs to be equal to their wish list. That should be your best guess. 
So concession list is like kind of useless to you, but you can make it sound really big for the other person. And it's really important to them. So you should have those ideas as well, like what might be of interest to them. And then you can trade them off each other. So if you want something that they're not willing to give, then you say, I can give you something else. Maybe you can get this. Maybe we can think about X or Y idea. And that is pretty much a one page template that you need to have for negotiation. Your five core issues, the must achieve, must avoids, your wish list, your concession list, your team with specific roles, who's observing, who's doing the analysis, who's playing the good cop, who's playing the bad cop, your key questions to ask, because you've got gone through with all of this knowing what you know, you still need to validate. And obviously your peer objective. So this is where I would say it's like the primary summary. And obviously you enter the room with that, and then you're gonna have some really random new information that you have no idea about. It's okay to take a break. The reset breaks are super common. Again, we feel pressured that, oh my God, what will they think? I think it's totally okay. If you have new information, you just need a break. You might as well not give a random information to them and be more thoughtful about it. So you go with this, you have reset breaks as needed. Um, and that's where I would say, if people keep asking me that, you know, how do I not give? If you know what you want and you know what you do not want to give, I think the must word is very critical. You can't show with a list of five things that are all flexed. Then it's very hard to negotiate if you don't know what you must want and must avoid. So that's would be my uh, broad guidance on this topic. No, absolutely. Uh, you know, on the first bit when you spoke about, uh, there's a very interesting follow-up question also that's there. Um, now taking it in a in different format of, uh, you know, how things turn virtual. So Shrutkirti and Raksha both have a similar question. I hope I pronounced your name right. Uh, Shrutkirti, do you want to actually uh, unmute yourself and ask that question? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much, Meher. Uh, hi, Nandini. Uh, really interesting session, first of all. Thank you so much. So um, I work in enterprise SaaS sales and, uh, you know, it's, while we all want to not walk away from any deal, but I totally take your point on knowing which deal to walk away from. But in a virtual world, ever since COVID struck, we've all been making deals virtually. So have you seen anything shift in deal making from going virtual, especially when we're not able to communicate um, know our body language? And while we can actively use more gestures, but still the body language is not as much as it used to. I agree with you. It is much harder. Um... I don't have any silver bullets candidly here that I can just tell you. Uh, but I have also personally found it much harder, especially as I've been doing APAC, which is even different language and culture. Um, but I will say that facial expressions have a pretty big role. So uh, uh, the more you look at the person's uh, you know, face that helps, at least you kind of can see uh, to some extent whether it's resonating or not. I know it's hard to like, really push your agenda. I would say th actually things, are, I would say some of the deals have been even either super fast or super slow. There is no in between in virtual because you can't influence things um, and do a handshake like over dinner and things like that. So I will say that's challenging, but I'm hoping we are back back from, from that world now and things are coming back. So yeah, focusing on facial expressions is the only thing that I've been working on. And um, I will also say the other trend I've seen is uh, a lot more proposals are being made like we send them a proposal, then they respond back uh, because it's so hard to convince people or with arguments over Zoom. So you kind of have to start tabling proposals early uh, versus in reality, you could do a half day brainstorming and kind of solve a lot of issues that would not even go on the, on the proposal. So 
I would say those are the two observations I have. Whether they are perfect or better, I don't know. But uh, uh, thanks for sharing. All right, uh, Nandini. Very interestingly, we have a lot of founders also amongst uh, our midst today, and uh, a lot of questions. I think even when I shared with you, were from that fraternity asking, you know, how do we as founders or how do we as startup uh, representatives get taken seriously during negotiations? Like, how do we get that edge on, especially you know, when you're negotiating with vendors and negotiating with investors, uh, while we still while we still want to kind of look at giving the right kind of value and not under delivering or undervaluing. So any tips for these founders uh, over there? It's really hard, guys. That's one. Because uh, it really depends on the amount of leverage you have, right? And if you are a very early stage founder, the leverage is probably not as much, especially when, like, I, I have a lot of early stage founders who are trying to do things with Uber. The reality is the leverage is quite less. Um, however, I will say the differentiators, and I'm speaking more as, like, the head of BD for Uber APAC. Like, so many startups come to me. And probably that's how you're going to a lot of other enterprises. I think um, being flexible uh, uh, is, is very, very, being flexible as well as um, being that agile team that will really problem solve is, is the true differentiator of a startup. See, a big company will all, will go value a start, go work with a startup for these things because they know they'll move faster and better and they'll customize for you. So that's definitely, that's one part of value proposition. Um, the second part of value proposition is obviously the relationship building and how you're going to um, work with them. And third is obviously like, you. Got, I also think that some founders need to be smart. Like sometimes they're competing with such large companies that even giving away a little bit of value is okay for making a very large company. I mean, people do that. There's an example of a firm with Amazon. Uh, you, I mean, if you can get some really large wins early on, um, it's okay to get a bit of value. I, I wouldn't go in the extreme of, oh, you're a foundation, not dilute, you should not do anything. I mean, if your objective is to make a massive company and work at massive scale, I would question if uh, giving up, if we are always worried about giving value, because if, if that's gonna change the trajectory and of your company. So um, those would be my early thoughts. In terms of how you come across, um, I can talk a little bit about trust how you build trust. Uh, that's something I've personally spent a bit of time on because it's just such a, such a vague word. Let's build trust. What does that even mean? I mean, either you build it or you don't. So I have a little bit of formula for you guys, which I think can be helpful even for the founders, by the way. Um, so the formula is credibility, which is what you say and how you believable you are. That's where I actually think a lot of the founders fail. Either they'll sell the moon or they'll be underselling. How credible you are and what stage you are, I think that's really, really critical. So number one is credibility. Number two is reliability. Reliability is basically your actions and how dependable you appear. So credibly and credibility, reliability, and third is intimacy, which is basically safety, security, how much I get a warm vibe with you versus you're just like this person who's just shown up. So if you have these three things going for you, people are likely to trust you more. So some people can be really credible, but they'll just come across as so off on the intimacy question that you can't trust them. Or somebody can be really reliable, but not really credible because they'll do it, but they'll just sell you the moon and they won't do what they exactly said. So credibility, reliability, and intimacy are the, like the numerators in the equation and they all, they all multiply with each other and divided by self-orientation. 
So self-orientation means personal focus, which how self-obsessed you are. If you're doing everything right at the top and you, the only thing you focus about is my company and my way and my everything, nobody will trust you. So how much you are at least incorporating the other person's interests, at least in your behavior, in your respect, we all want to get the best thing for ourselves, but how do you show up? So um, this is another way. And I, I personally try to assess sometimes when, I, when I'm like, I don't really trust this person, but like he or she seemed to be saying the right things. Then I go into this equation, I'm like, okay, where are they messing up? Um, or where am I messing up at times, you know? Uh, so it's probably worth thinking about how do you build trust with the people you're, especially when you're a startup founder and you're selling an uphill task, right? So, and there, if you build trust, people will trust, will be able to, uh, willing to give you more business. That makes sense. No, I think uh, very sound advice over there and uh, something that anyone and everyone should be following for sure. Um, we have a very interesting question from Dhwani right now on, uh, you know, talking about money, talking about numbers. So Dhwani, you want to actually unmute yourself and ask this. Sure. Thanks. Um, hi, Nandini. Uh, thank you so much for the session. Uh, quickly wanted to ask you one question. Um, I've noticed mostly with, I work in a very male dominant um, industry, which is sports. And I noticed that, you know, a lot of uh, times men don't have so much of an issue talking money. So while I might be negotiating the deliverables and, you know, everything that I'll be giving to them as far as the deal is concerned, but when it comes to money, I just have some level of hesitation and that's just not just for deals, but even to say salary. It takes me a lot more than, say, my male counterpart to walk up to my, um, you know, boss to ask for a salary hike. Just, I feel like it's an ingrained bias uh, that uh, may not be there for my male counterparts. So any way to navigate around that without, you know, um, feeling that I'm, I'm, giving myself too much importance. I think what you're basically saying is some kind of a bias or a fear that we have all growing up, right? Like, yeah, too ridiculous an ask. Will I be judged? It's almost embarrassing. Right. Or appearing too needy or it's like, or too demanding, like something like that. I don't know. It's just probably ingrained in us how we've grown up. Um, right. I think it happens to all of us. So please don't feel like you're the only one. So it all happens to all of us in some shape and form. Um, but the reality is you have to ask. Question is, how will you ask? I, I'm not gonna even debate that you have to ask. You can't say I'm not comfortable. That's not an option. So first of all, that's, I'm taking that away. Now you have to ask. Now how you get comfortable to ask is the question, which goes back to preparation. Preparation and practice are the only way. When I do salary negotiations for my own, like when I have done for my job, I have also practiced. I've practiced myself, I practice with my husband, that does this come across better or this comes across better? Because we are all super worried how it will land and how do I respond if somebody asks that question? So I'm just saying, not asking is not an option. So that throw it out of the window. That was a prior generation. For our generation, we have to ask. Now, how we ask, is your practice and also as I think some ask how often to follow up. So practice and also anticipate the questions and then also giving them the flexibility um, uh, to do that. So I'll, I'll just go back to preparing and practice with a friend or a colleague or a family member. That's the only option. That's really helpful. Thank you. Basically, don't hesitate and ask, but ask well. Um, we have a very, uh, I think a lot of people want to know right now is we spoke about, um, you know, 
getting into the deal there are two parties involved and often with two parties you end up following up a lot so what are some best practices and how often do you actually end up following up with your counterpart anything you want to shed light over there follow up oh that's a very interesting question obviously caveat depends on what is your negotiating leverage in the deal how desperate you are to close the deal or not one of the best tips i will give you is when you table an offer it should always have a timeline to it that offer should not stand after x date so that needs to be your number one tip the problem the biggest problem i see in general in india in negotiations people just don't give offers they just keep talking they just keep discussing i'm like why are you discussing guys and in that discussion they'll get confused they will actually misinterpret the deal because they'll be just chit chatting so i mean I, i'm it's it's it, it can be painful at times but the reality is tabling offers with a timeline is one of the most or the best ways i have seen things happen and a reason for that timeline the problem if you're negotiating in india is people don't even honor timelines you can write something on on uh, on an offer they won't honor it or they won't take it seriously so you have to explain them why there is a timeline the explanation could be my budget gets over in this quarter the explanation could be uh if it's something product related that you know the product timelines are this it's dependent on that or even the time or even the timeline could be i need this deal to meet my target this quarter if you don't do it fine we'll talk about it next quarter i'll have something else you'll have something else so i mean you can come up with five other ideas i'm just kind of thinking on spontaneously right now but having a timeline and explaining the timeline is the most critical thing that should reduce follow ups the second way is again the team roles are very critical so who follows up when is also matters uh so like in my team whatever there are two three levels right uh, one person is negotiating and there is their boss and then it's me so uh, you should also have na- have specific roles and responsibilities defined there shouldn't be that one person who's going mad because you lose complete leverage with that if you're the only person just following up following up following up it's not going to be a deal it's like you're just desperate to get it done so you also need to be very smart about how you it's not about escalation it's about everybody playing a different role of identifying how you can do a follow up yourself or your boss checking in with their person's boss or whatever that dynamic you want to play out depending on the deal um the third thing is in terms of follow up that i've also creatively used let's say we give an offer there's no response there's something happening some people changes blah 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 i think it's okay to also update the offer and say that since you know the timeline is going to run by this is a revised offer um and revised offer could be both ways depending on your leverage i've done both i could have made it better to get them to close it or could have made it worse to basically show them this is deal is not going anywhere with the way you are behaving so depends i'm just say, suggesting that follow up shouldn't be oh please tell us please tell us follow ups also are very very important interventions in your argue argue and the uh proposal packet stage um but most of the times uh, i have used it to say we can give you additional x if you give us additional y to get them to react to that offer that is already sitting with them that they haven't responded to 
Um, lots to take back again from here. Uh, Krati, do you want to go ahead and ask your next question? Uh, very uh, important, and I think something that we all kind of feel, I feel like we all hold ourselves back for. Sure. Uh, hi, Nandini. Thanks for all your tips, especially regarding preparation. Uh, so my question is, uh, how how much a role does intuition play in uh, negotiations and deal making? And how do you differentiate between uh, intuition and bias? It's a loaded question, but I will say one thing, and you guys may not like it. In people just give too much credit to intuition. If you do real preparation, you don't really need a intuition is going to be built over lots of hundreds of negotiations. Oh, intuition. At least if you're if you're doing a true true negotiation and deal making, intu like don't assume much intuition at that point in time. Where intu in your in, in, in the deal making part, where intuition plays a role is the trust angle or the relationship angle. And that's where it plays a role. Where you're like, okay, I'm kind of getting the deal I want. They also seem fine, but I'm not getting a good feeling. That's where intuition plays a big role. What am I missing? Is, is there something that they have got that, like, if you're not getting a good intuition, then that's when you need to reflect on what's that lack of trust uh, or what am I missing? Or, you know, getting validation from any of your other team members. Uh, what are they thinking or is it just you? Or if you're worried about some aspect, that seems fine, but you're still worried. What additional term can you add in the contract that can help you get more comfort? So. I would say don't worry too much about intuition. Just do the work, get the deals. Once you have a few deals under your belt, you'll start feeling good yourself. Uh, and bias, I mean, bias is such a big word. It's there everywhere for all of us all the time. Um, I don't really know what to say. I've been in really ridiculous situations as well where it's like painful uh, and bias is so much in your face, um, but it's a job guys. So. And that's all I will say. Like, I mean, it's like how you'd learn to deal with bias in life in general. I wouldn't say negotiation is anything special. Well, I think, uh, again, uh, I just wanted to kind of put it out there. I think a lot of us do kind of get held back and rely on intuition a lot. Um, Nandini, we've spoken a lot about, you know, what are the good practices in case of getting into a deal? How do we kind of go forward from there? But we also spoke about... Um, that it's okay to walk away. Now, what is the ideal way to quit a negotiation if we feel like it's not working out? And um, how do you gauge that it's not working out? So to respond to how do you gauge it's not working out, if you already know what are your must achieves, if you're not getting it, you should walk away, right? So if you, have, if you have identified your must achieves correctly, you know, and if you're not getting them, you should walk away. But that must achieves need to be identified correctly. A lot of people make mistakes as they list 15 things in must achieve. Of course, you're gonna walk away with every deal then, right? Your must achieve needs to be must, must, must achieve. So identifying that and also aligning it with your organization. Many a times we are not an individual who's just negotiating. We are, we are negotiating on behalf of the company. So there are other people who may have input. So all three or four people who need to have input need to agree on that must achieve. Must achieve. We all agree, then you know you're in a good position. So that's one. Um, in terms of walking away, so I will say, if you have the clarity upfront uh, on must achieve and your clarity on your alternatives, if I don't get this deal, what are my backup plans? What are my alternatives? If you have these two, 
you will always be in a good position to walk away. I'm, I never suggest walk away. This should be your last resort. But knowing these two in your head will always give you that option and confidence that you'll not be giving up things to the counterparty because you haven't got that confidence. That's number one. And then if you have to walk away, uh, I think uh, you have to be very clear. And by the way, this, I have used walk away also as a negotiating tactic. I don't want to confuse you guys, but like sometimes you walk away to basically tell the person, this is it. And then they come back to the table, right? So there is a bit of game theory or negotiation as well that am I truly walking away or am I walking away, but leaving an opening with them? So if you're walking away with leaving an opening, then you be very specific and say, I'm walking away because of X, Y, Z. I will be back at the table if you're willing to give me X for this much, within this much time. So that's one way. The second way is if you're truly walking away, then you just walk away and say, there's a change in business direction. Don't think our objectives are going to be aligned, at least in the short to medium term as I see it. I think it's best that we walk away with mutual respect and hopefully you'll find other opportunities to work, with, work together. And, and sometimes I walked away and still grabbed dinner with those people because I still want to maintain that relationship. It just hasn't worked out at this point in time that both businesses didn't, don't, are not meeting each other's objectives. So um, that's, I would say, uh, keep relationship intact. Be very clear on why. And if there is an opening you want to leave, then leave it in a very specific way. And, and finally, I'll say the one mistake I see people making is uh, sometimes walking away is better than prolonged argumentations because time is of value. And or poor execution. So I, if somebody asks me the worst deals I've done, I'll not name the company. The worst deal I've done is a deal with a very large company in India where I had that intuition. I'd done the whole preparation. Everything was perfect, but I was getting this intuition that these people can't be trusted. They just seem off. Like even if you get everything in the contract, they might not honor it. And, you know, I still went ahead with it. And post the deal was signed and we're in the execution phase, it flopped. So think hard about right now that the, the deadline seems to be signing and closing the deal. The deadline needs to be 12 months of execution. So if the execution is failing and you still have your contract, then I'm, I wasted so much energy. I guess I have a lifelong learning, but uh, it's just poor execution. So. I've had actually quite a few deals that I have let my team say walk away right now, even after signing or close to signing, because we are not convinced they'll be able to execute. And they will, I mean, it's four months of sunk cost. It's going to be one and a half years of sunk cost. What's the point? And I tell people it's okay. The work you've done, you're, uh, it's fine. Like it's, it, it's that one painful deal is going to mar all the other experiences you're going to have. So, uh, and I think that's where a lot of uh, leaders and managers actually don't give that safe space to their employees. And that's where people are always running after deals. But uh, those are my two cents on that. Thank you so much, uh, Nandi, again. Uh, Raksha, we're going to let you take the next question. You can go ahead and unmute yourself. Yeah, thanks, Meher. Hey, Nandini, great session, really loving it. Um, my question to you is a lot of times, let's say we're completely prepared, but then, you know, your product is flawed or 
let's say you know competition is better doing better in one of the aspects um a lot of times in my experience i just accept it and say hey you know that's not our greatest strength we're working on it but here's what you will get uh, otherwise so i mean if you have any two cents on that on how is there any way at all that you can actually leverage uh, on something that you lack see um just thinking i think uh, see if the product is really far behind it's going to be a really hard upsell right at the end of the day i mean a deal is a deal but still people are using a product for their use um but i think what you can do in those situations is acknowledge i agree with the acknowledgement um but also use the opportunity to give them um maybe something that they're looking for for instance a free trial or free you know advice or an input like find something else to give because if you're going to negotiate on that one point as i said right they want one feature you don't have that feature it's a useless negotiation unless you come back and say that i will be back in 3 6 months when my feature is ready but in the meantime that is where the asking simple questions matter is this feature the only important thing you are looking for what are the other features that you are looking for actually more importantly what's the problem that you are trying to solve is there something that you are willing to try at least for the short term for whatever minimal cost um so just try and understand the person versus just debating on the feature that will be my only input on that if that feature is the most critical thing for them it's a must have for them that there is no deal but if it's not a must have it is one of the things and with your genuine questions and interest you can understand your customer better for future you you're making your product better and you're building a relationship that will help you sell them better that's all i'll say sure thank you and we at the last few minutes of our session but uh, nandi couple of questions coming your way still um before we close this i really wanted you to kind of spend some time on some big mistakes that you've seen people make while closing deals and what are like these absolute not to do's that people should keep in mind when uh, getting into deals as well so i think i've shared a few examples uh, during my conversations as well but maybe a few ones that i tell my teams uh, i mean i have a team of a pretty significant team of deal makers so number one is especially for women not being bold enough not exploring the range of options just negotiating on one two three things just explore the range of options the whole spectrum uh, again i read somewhere that you know successful negotiators are optimists you got to be an optimist if you're going to think more you're going to get more you're going to ask for more so not being bold enough is probably the one, number one thing the number two i think is again 80 20 guys like i know they like some people get into the negotiation mode where they're just oh my god getting into the details of every issue till nth day those deals never get closed or even they get closed everybody has so much deal fatigue they're so done with it so the more preparation you do the more you know what's your 80 20 right like details matter absolutely matter but close on the most critical terms and move fast not perfect everything and obviously depends on the leverage right if you have leverage take your time let other person give you all the things uh, but if you if it's a it's a fair deal then i would say 80 20 what that's another thing that matters uh, the third thing i would say is uh, not focusing on critical clauses that prepare you for both outcomes see any deal is a project or a new venture or like a concept right 
If it is successful, what happens? If it fails, what happens? You should have those scenarios in your head and also think about what clauses you have in your contract that helps you prevail in both of those scenarios. So um, exclusivity, think of the game theory. If it's successful, what more can I get? If it's not successful, can they really go to my competitor right away? What will happen? Uh, if, I mean, a lot of time when startups want to do deals with Uber, I'm like, okay, if you're successful, what am I going to get? Additionally, if I make you successful, right? Or uh, sometimes if I'm working with a very large company uh, where Uber is like not in the same leverage, then I'll be like, okay, uh, how can I cover your downside? Uh, sometimes there are like penalties and things like that. As well, I include that, you know, if you're not going to meet my objectives, we are not meeting each other's objectives, then I have invested so much. Even if it doesn't work out, at least we should share the cost. So just giving you examples of think hard if it's a big, not for a tiny deal, but it's a big investment or a big uh, thing that you're doing. Uh, I feel like people are so busy closing it, they forget what's gonna happen 12 months from now, 24 months from now. And how will it, how will it change uh, the landscape? So not being bold enough, not focusing on 80-20, and not focusing on the critical clauses that you that prepare you for both outcomes because you don't know, right? I mean, I had deals that were a total mess because of COVID, but there were some deals that were so good that we could get out quite smoothly. So it really depends. I mean, you can't predict COVID again, but um, things may happen, right? On both ways, upsides and downsides. And depending on your leverage and situation, um, you should be thinking of both. Uh, definitely take note of these as well. Uh, Nandini, as we close our session, my last and my most favorite question to all of our speakers over here, um, what are some books you could recommend for people to kind of brush up on the skills when it comes to deal-making, when it comes to negotiating, anything that you have? Okay. So if you guys work at any company that gives you training, Scottwork, S-C-O-T-W-O-R-K. Scottwork is one of the best negotiation training in the world. It's very expensive, but if you're at a company that can afford it, definitely leverage them. Um, Chris Voss has a masterclass on negotiation. That's or maybe some YouTube videos. That's another one that you can see and reflect and get some good examples. In terms of books, candidly, you can read one or two books, but it's not going to be the same. Uh, but uh, there is a book by this Wharton professor called Stuart Diamond. It's called Getting More. So that's good. Uh, there's a book on influence by Bob Kialdiani. That's very good. And uh, and then, you know, about building relationships and building, you know, there's a book about called Give and Take by Adam Grant that I find very good. It's so much about like, how people have been very successful by giving and the more you give the more your reputation builds i mean in today's world even if you're negotiating the other party would have done your ref check so the more you have uh, a reputation a positive reputation the better it is they're going to trust you more um in terms of what you're saying if i'm real if i genuinely say that this is not possible at uber it's truly not possible at uber. like that like people are going to trust you if you say that right um, if you've been that person who's given, who has built a reputation over time. So um, obviously I'll, I will say in my closing that uh, it's like, like implement even one or two or three of the things that you remember, if you, if you can remember today in your, in your daily life, in your personal life, professional life. Um, uh, and then, you know, uh, uh, reach out to me if you need anything or connect on LinkedIn, would love to give back and help any of you because 
I can tell you, I didn't even know about art of deal making when I was really young. It's just, it's all serendipity. Go in investment banking, you do BD, you kind of learn through it over time and then you realize you're quite good at it and then you get more into it. So, uh, so yeah, thank you for such an amazing engagement today. I, I mean, I hope I answered most of the questions, but I think there were just so many and I, I hope there were some good points for you guys. Well, I think definitely a lot to take back today, Nandini. Thank you so much for uh, the last 60 minutes. I honestly don't know where that flew by, but uh, definitely like a lot to take back, a lot to ponder upon, a lot to upskill ourselves for sure. Um, it's been great having you here. You've been very, very candid. And I think it was so interesting to hear you. A uh, lot to learn, like I said, and uh, we're going to hopefully see some ACE negotiators in our midst in the next time if we're doing this as well. Thank you again, Nandini.